invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel 26. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because we always keep stacks just in case anyone needs one. I'll remind you again that if you have a friend or family that you'd like to give a Bible to, this one they can take with them it's a, a nice little paperback and we've got them back there and those are back there we just keep kind of restocking them as they go out and we just, we just buy more and please take those give them away that's what they're there for and they're there for you to use if you end up here on a Sunday morning and you don't have a Bible yourself I will say if they are stacking up at home if you've got 12 or 15 of those Bibles because you forgot to bring yours at home go ahead and bring them back so others can use them Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are truly beautiful. And this comes out and expresses itself even to the physical eye as we see the world around us. See the snow falling this morning. What What a beautiful thing that is. And I was thinking, Lord, that uh, no one of man could have come up with something like snow. None of us would have had the presence of mind to think of the way you cover this world and blanket it in white around this time of year. The way you revitalize the, the world with green. Lord, in the spring and the way you brighten the sun with its golds and yellows in the summer. And bring about the reds and oranges, colors of the fall. Father, you are truly beautiful. And beauty exudes from you. And we praise you for this. We thank you this morning that we can share this. And I just wanted to pause and acknowledge that and thank you. Thank you for the extra gift this morning, the blessing. Father, we thank you for Jesus. As Jackie shared, what he did on Calvary, Lord Jesus... What you did on the cross for us is almost unspeakable when we try to come up with words of thanks. Absolutely life-altering and mind-boggling, Lord, that you would love us that much. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for your decision to go there. And we thank you for continually continually expressing that to us and to our hearts. And Jesus, we pray that you will... Help us to consider the past, even as we do in Bible study this morning. To consider the past that we might live in the present with our hope in the future. For we know that you're in all three places yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus, as we study, we pray your Spirit would teach us within today. And lead us closer to that final day when you call us home. Holy Spirit, may your words be heard this morning. Over and above all other words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel 26, verse 1 begins, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, 
David sent out spies and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, or Zeruiah, or however you want to pronounce that, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. (laughs) In other words, I won't need to. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can strike out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? And David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Now I want you to get the picture. These two guys are having this argument in the middle of the camp, just steps away from Saul. I mean, this is worse, worse than the whole bathroom scene from last week. Okay? Where they're whispering in the cave as Saul is in the cave nearby and they're, they're having this argument about whether or not to kill Saul. Another argument is now ensuing between David and Abishai, surrounded by 3,000 men of Saul's army, Abner, the captain of the host there, the, the commander of his army, and Saul lying there asleep, and the two are having this argument. No, I'm not going to kill him. No, I don't think. I think you should kill him. I don't think I should. Look, he's the Lord's anointed. No, look, his spear's right there. Let's get him. And, and this is it's comical to me that this is going on. And Saul doesn't wake up. He doesn't hear a thing. David says in verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at, that is at his head and the jug of water and let's go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away but no one saw or knew it nor did any awake for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner the son of Ner saying, Will you not answer Abner? And Abner replied, Who are you that calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This is the thing you have done. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die, because you did not guard your lord, the Lord's anointed. See now. See where the king's spear is. And the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice. It is my voice, my lord, the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing a servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. 
Now then do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts for a partridge in a pear tree in the mountains. Verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight to this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. And David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. And the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me from all distress. And then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David, you will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And Saul very quickly will disappear off the pages of Scripture. The last thing, almost an epitaph you could say, that could be placed on on Saul's headstone, I have played the fool. I've played the fool. Haven't we heard this story before? Isn't this part and partial the same story we read last week, just with slightly different circumstances? Saul, with an army of 3,000 men, comes after David in the wilderness. We read that. David catches Saul in a compromised position. Well, we read a similar story to that. David spares Saul's life. Read it last week. Saul apologizes and promises never to chase David down again. It's chapter 24, and you can read it, almost identical to chapter 26. And I read chapter 26 this last week and I said, Lord, is this a rerun? I've seen this movie before. Have you ever had that experience? You're sitting in a theater and you've gone to see a new movie that you've heard came out and you're real excited to see it and about halfway through you realize, I saw this two weeks ago. I already paid money to see this movie. Maybe it's just something that happens when you hit 40, I don't know, but it's happened to me before. Or you're in a video, no, I'm sure we haven't seen this, honey. No, I'm sure we have. No, we haven't. Let's take it home and watch it. And five minutes into it, you go, yeah, we rented that one last week. That's what it feels like reading this story. We've seen this before. This has happened before. And some critics actually think this story of David's forgiveness is just a duplicate version of 1 Samuel 24. It's not a different story. It's just kind of the same one retold, retooled. But as similar as these two stories are, they are also very unique in their own way. Besides, let me ask you, what does your own life teach you about the annoying anointed? We talked about Saul as the anointed one of the Lord last week. The annoying anointed. And the truth is, the annoying anointed rarely disappear after being forgiven just once. Now think about that. People who irritate you, who bug you, who really stick in your craw. And I'm not even sure what that means, but people who do that. And maybe last week as we talked about that person in your life, or those people in your life, who just, they bug, they annoy. But they're there because the Lord is using them to refine and to purify us, to sanctify us in our lives. Maybe after last week, you, we studied that, we prayed about it, talked about it, and you went home and said, I'm going to forgive that person. And so you did. And before this morning ever came about, they've already started annoying you again. Because that's how it works. 
But I already forgave them. Yeah, but they're going to continue to annoy you because that's kind of their role. That's why God has called them into your life. Here's a sound question for students of the Word. Why did God choose to include this story in Scripture? Now, I find myself asking that a lot. Why, Lord, is this story here? Why did He include it? Nothing in Scripture is inadvertently inspired. There's no righteous redundancy in the Bible. No excessive examples or superfluous stories or tedious teachings, and I could go on, but I won't. Sometimes my uh, words are tedious. But Scripture is not redundant. We're going to get to the book of Chronicles, which is going to restate, in many ways, First and Second Kings. And you may be tempted to ask at that point, what's the point? Let's skip on to the next book. We've already read this. And I read this story. I thought we've already heard this story. We've already seen this example. But nothing in Scripture is there accidentally. This is not an oops where the Holy Spirit put it in and then later after the editing process went back and went, <laughs> I guess we didn't need that one, huh? We've got to cut that out. Made the Scripture uh, a little shorter. Get the Reader's Digest version. Nothing in Scripture is there by accident. The Holy Spirit is the perfect editor. And because I believe it's all here for a reason, we need to pause. We need to look again and say, okay, so what are you saying this time around? Remember, David's been a fugitive in Israel for ten years now. And in that time, there could be dozens of great stories about David's exploits as a military man. David and his mighty men, who they will one day be called. In fact, I'd love to know, what was it that happened? Aside from you know, Saul, Bug, and David, what else was going on during those times? Across this decade of David's life, what was happening here? There have got to be dozens of great stories of this man after God's own heart that express his royal nature and his kingly stature and the work that God is doing with him. Yet only a handful are actually kept in the biblical record. Why? Why this story? And why are these chosen? And why include two stories of forgiveness, chapter 24 and chapter 26? So I went back and began looking across this decade, and I discovered there aren't just two stories of forgiveness. In all actuality, there are seven. Seven stories are given to us of this period in David's life, and of these seven stories, seven of them bear the mark of forgiveness. The first three are are David avoiding the spear of Saul. He's in Saul's court. And we're told in 1 Samuel 18 verse 11 and 1 Samuel 19 verse 10 that Saul picked up his spear and threw it at David and tried to kill him three times. The first time it narrowly missed and David escaped but then he came back. He forgave Saul and came back and began to serve him in his court again to play that soothing music for Saul who was getting more and more irritated as the demons attacked him. Second time, Saul throws a spear again, and David narrowly escapes with his life. Jonathan intervenes and says, Dad, what are you doing? David hasn't done anything wrong. And Saul says, Oh, I know, I know, I'm, I'm sorry. David forgives him again. Third time, Saul picks up the spear and throws it at David. Finally, David says, I've got to get out of here for my life. But he still forgives him. He still considers Saul to be king. Saul to be the Lord's anointed. The fourth time, as we read last week, 1 Samuel 24, David forgives Saul from the cave of En Gedi. He could have killed him right then and there, but he doesn't. He forgives him and lets him go. Time number... Uh, sorry, that's time number... Uh, that's five. Number four was before that, First Samuel 22, where David takes responsibility for Saul's murders in Nob and forgives him there. 
There's five examples of forgiveness. The sixth one is what we studied on Wednesday night, 1 Samuel 25. David forgives Nabal the fool. And that's a fascinating story. Thanks to Abigail stepping in, David realizes what's going on and he forgives Nabal. So there's a sixth story of forgiveness and this morning is number seven where David again forgives Saul in the wilderness of Ziph. One word can sum up this decade-long struggle, this cat-and-mouse game between Saul and David and the word is forgiveness. Seven times we read of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Peter said, should we forgive seven times? And Jesus said, how about 70 times seven times? Which I quickly added up, 490 times. Okay, so I only have to be annoyed 490 times and then I'm done. I get to walk away. Let's take a look at this seventh story of forgiveness because there is something very unique about it. And last time David spared Saul's life, he took a sample cut of the hem of Saul's robe. This time he takes Saul's spear. Go back to verse 7. David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul is sleeping in the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Skip down to verse 12. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head. And they went away, but no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Some things to jot down this morning if you want to take notes. And the first one is this. And these are indications, again, of a man after God's own heart. Things we can learn from David that indicate a follower of the Lord. And the first one is that David recognizes Saul's authority. David recognizes Saul's authority. Regardless of Saul's murderous intent, David recognizes his authority. The spear was the symbol of kingly rule or authority. It was much like the scepter would be, but especially when the king was out to war, it was the spear that was the, the example of his authority. Even today in the Middle East, if you found a Bedouin tribe and you saw where the tents were all lined up and there was a spear stuck in the ground in front of one tent, you would know that's the tent, that's the place of the sheik of that tribe. Because the spear in the Middle East was that symbol of authority. So David takes the spear. He takes the jug of water, but he's not challenging Saul's authority as he did the last time. Remember the last time he cut that edge of the hem off of Saul's robe? That hem that also speaks of the authority of the person wearing it. The position, the stature. And David cuts into it and he feels guilty because it's a challenge to the authority of Saul. Not this time. He takes the spear not to challenge Saul's authority, but he takes it to make another point. Abner and Saul's men are not fully recognizing their responsibility to guard their king. And that's David's point in this. Look at verse 15. David said to Abner, Are you not a man and who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded the Lord your king as he's holding up this spear? For one of, your, of the people came to destroy the king your Lord, and the thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. He's making a point here to Abner, to the entire army around Saul. You need to protect the king. He is the Lord's anointed. He is in authority. Whether you like it or not, he is the boss. And David here raises for me one of the toughest issues in my heart and in the heart of rebellious man. And that is the recognition of God-ordained authority. I remember as a young youth pastor just messing with the senior pastor because I didn't recognize the God-ordained authority 
that he had. I didn't honor it as, as I should have. And I look back now and I think of, especially for the first church I worked at, I mean, I feel, feel sorry for the guy. He's probably home with the Lord now, and I hope so, because he doesn't need people like me around. I was just a stinker of a youth pastor. I played all kinds of jokes. And if you want to hear some of the things I did, I'll tell you another time. But I, I didn't recognize the authority that was placed in that man. Do you value anointed authority? Do you value those who are in leadership in a church body or a church fellowship? Do you recognize the authority of spiritual leadership here at the bridge? And even in saying these words, I know there are some this morning who will kind of go, it feels a little uncomfortable. What are you asking, Rick? You're asking us to kneel down and, and say we're not worthy before you? No. I'm not. In fact, I struggle with even raising this issue at all. And there's only one reason why I bring it up this morning. It's because it is so critical to each one of our hearts spiritually to understand that God has placed in all of our lives people who have spiritual authority. That is God-ordained. But what if that person in, in authority or control is a jerk? How about Saul? Did he earn that authority in David's life? And yet David continues even now to speak of the authority of the man who owns the spear. Saul is the authority. He is the rule. He is the king. And army and Abner, you need to protect that. You need to rally around that. And you're not doing so. And David, who had more right than anybody in all Israel to reject and rebel against the authority of the king, would not do it. David recognizes Saul's authority. This is so important for our faith game. In the secular realm, Paul writes that we need to recognize authority. Romans 13 verse 1 says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Does that mean that if she's elected... I remind you Saul wrote this to the church in Rome that was under the authority of Nero who was killing Christians at the time you think we have a hard time swallowing sometimes our governmental authority try living in Rome and watching a brother or a mother or a sister or a wife burned at the stake in Nero's garden and then receiving a letter like this from Saul you are to be in subjection to the governing authorities what? yeah because even Nero was there because God placed him there for that season in the secular realm we're told to to respect to recognize the governing authorities spiritually as well Hebrews 13 verse 17 obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this I like this verse let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you I want to add a caveat to this that I believe must be understood in the spiritual realm. 1 Corinthians 11.1 Paul says, Be imitators of me. And then he says, Just as I also am of Christ. And so spiritually, you are called, I am called, we are called to follow those who have been placed and ordained in authority over us in our lives. But follow them as they follow Christ. 
you be sure that anybody who stands in spiritual authority in your life, who you acknowledge, that they are following Jesus. That their life is in the direction of Jesus. Not perfect, for none of us will be. But I determine that I will place myself under the spiritual authority of those who I know follow Jesus first and foremost. Sometimes our leaders don't deserve to be obeyed. Like when they put the Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve Eve. How can they do that? By the way, Paul says one man observes one day above the other and other men observe all days the same. Whatever you do, just do all to the name of the Lord. And So that's what we're going to do on Christmas Eve Eve this year. Next year we're going to be back on Christmas Eve. So God bless us everyone. In this case of our story, this man after God's own heart still recognizes the anointed authority of Saul and he acts to call the leader to the accountability of the Lord. He takes the spear... He calls Abner in the army, but he also now is going to speak to Saul, and he's going to call Saul to his accountability. He's going to say, look, if this is the Lord, fine, then offer me up. But if you're listening to other men, then there's a problem here, Saul. He is calling the leader to account. Now, he's not cutting in on his authority. He hasn't taken the hymn. He's taken the spear, which is going to be returned, but he's making a point. Saul, if you follow the Lord, everything would be fine here. And I'm not sure that you are. Stop, consider this, think about it. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't verse 12 indicate the Lord himself made it possible for David to sneak in and kill Saul? Look at verse 12 again. David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they, all went, and they went away, David and Abishai. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all sound asleep because, the Bible tells us, because, the Holy Spirit tells us, a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. That's why they were able to have this argument in the middle of the camp, and no one wake up. Because God sprinkled sleepy dust on all their eyes... And they're sound asleep, so they're not waking up because God had given them sleeping aid. It's amazing to me. And Abishai recognizes this as they're talking. Dave, we got it, man. This is, the, this is a God-ordained opportunity to take Saul out. Look, we're standing here, no one's awake. The fact that we've been got here is miraculous. Therefore, God must want us to kill Saul. That's the reasoning, and he's, he's really pretty right on. By the circumstances, you read the story, and this is what Abishai is saying. Today, God, verse 8, has delivered your enemy into your hand. This is of the Lord. Interesting. Because what the Lord really did was provide David with a choice. Second thing in your notes, not only does David recognize Saul's authority, but David responds to God's test. The Lord doesn't tempt David here, but he does test him. And he gives David opportunity to do what David's heart tells him to do, right or wrong. God brings this deep sleep on these men. And David goes in, and now he is being tested by the Lord. Now, be clear on this. The Bible doesn't say the Lord tempted David. It says he tested him. Well, it doesn't even say he tested him. I'm implying, assuming that he tested him. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But God does test us. He does test his children. Test, tempt, isn't it the same thing? No, it's not. Temptation, we've talked about this before, temptation is for the evil purpose of leading me away from God. Testing is for the holy purpose of bringing me near to God. 
And so the Lord will give me opportunity to act out my faith in life. He will put me in situations where my faith can be strengthened by simply making right choices. He will test my faith. And by that testing, I become stronger. God is not luring David here into a temptation of sin. He knows David too well. He knows, based on David's actions in the cave at En Gedi, he knows exactly what David is going to do here. Interesting, God trusts David in the same way that David's actions show that he trusted the Lord to protect him. Abishai, by the way, is doing what he thinks is right. And sometimes that's exactly what happens in our life. The Lord will put us into a situation of tempting, or not tempting, of testing, and other Christians around us will begin to tempt us, thinking it's the right thing. Oh, the Lord set this situation up, so you really you have opportunity now just to knock this person out of your life because God obviously laid the groundwork for this to happen. God may have laid the groundwork for it to happen, but He wants you to respond in love. And so be aware. Sometimes people will be well-meaning. Abishai is well-meaning. He's absolutely sincere, sincere, and he encourages David to fail God's test. Because it appears as though God is behind him. Well, David responds, and he responds well. He doesn't kill Saul. What he does instead is stand up to Saul's entire entire army, which, number three, jot this down, David's righteousness is bold. His righteousness is bold. I heard this quote last week. I love this. I will not tremble in the presence of men if if I have trembled in the presence of God. Let's say that again. Listen. I will not tremble in the presence of men if I have trembled in the presence of God. If my fear is of God, I will not fear what man can do. But when I fear man or even principalities and powers in the dark places, gang, it indicates a lack of having been in the presence of God. Now this is so important and I... I struggle with this. I've got to tell you honestly, I struggle with this because I think, and I've said this recently, we fear the dark powers far too much. We fear Satan. We fear the demonic realm way, way too much in the church. Now I'm not saying we should close a blind eye to what Satan's up to in the world. We need to be sharp and aware and alert to his activity. And to the attacks that do come. But we give him so much power that he doesn't even have. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow. It's kind of a hellfire and brimstone perspective of God, isn't it? Well, no, because Jesus goes on and says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. But there's a principle here, gang. I can fear man who can take my life, or I can fear God who controls my eternity. Where are you going to fear? Where's your concern going to be? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Will you please mark that? Memorize that. Say it to yourself often. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I get passionate about this, because Satan is a terrorist. And what a terrorist does is change your lifestyle by fear. 
Osama bin Laden is not going to show up this morning, so you can relax. He's not coming in the barn with a suicide belt strapped on, ready to take out the British Christian Fellowship. It's not going to happen today. But America, walk into any one of our airports, is a radically changed nation because of fear. Because we're afraid. What, what if? How many of you are a little more concerned about going into a shopping mall after a gunman opened fire this week? And this morning I just heard on the news that at a YWAM center in Colorado, a gunman came in and killed several people. So maybe we should tell our kids, don't sign up with Youth with a Mission because you could get shot. It's terrorism. And it's nothing but false fear. I see so many people in the church who live fearful of Satan's terrorism. I hear language far too much about how my life is just under a barrage of attack. You know what? Then look at the Lord. You are the victor. You have won. And you bear in your heart and in your life, if you're a Christian this morning, you bear the power and the shield of Jesus Christ. What are we afraid of? And I have no problem declaring, Satan, if you can hear me, you're not welcome here. And he's not welcome in my life. And he's not welcome in my home. And he's not welcome over my kids. And he doesn't scare me in the least because Jesus won. And because God is the great creator. And Satan is just a terrorist. Don't fear him. Don't fear him. He can only do to you what you allow. Don't be afraid. Now at this point in the story, David, David who, who stands up to the Saul's army, and he's got guts and conviction. He's, an, he's a courageous dude. But he's also beginning to show some personal pain. More than we've even seen in David up to this point. Number four in your notes, David begins to show his greatest concern. His personal relationship is threatened. In verse 17, where Saul recognizes David's voice, he says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And then he said, Why then is my lord pursuing a servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. He's saying, in essence, let him take my life. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. Now listen to this. For they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Interesting to me. He's saying, Saul, do you realize you're pursuing me like this? You are keeping me from my inheritance. Well, what's your inheritance, David? The throne, right? The rule over Israel? No, that's not David's concern at all here. You're keeping me from my inheritance. What is it that David can't do while he's on the run? Well, he can't go worship Israel's God and the fellowship of Israel as one of the Israelites. He can't go to the tabernacle. He can't enjoin himself to the feast of Israel. All those things that God provided for the people of Israel to deepen their relationship with the Lord, David is an outcast. He cannot partake in that. Can you imagine if suddenly in your life you were on the run and you could not worship with other Christians? You couldn't gather. The only communion you could take would be if you managed to find some, some juice and crackers on your own and just did it on your own. But you're outcast, you're fugitive, you're on the run. You can't partake in any of the commonwealth of Christianity. That's where David is. 
And he makes a statement here, and it's very interesting. He says, They have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Another believer hurts you. A church disappoints you. A pastor or a leader fails you, and so you begin to give up on the Lord altogether. You begin to say, maybe I should just go serve other gods. Maybe I should just check out a different place. Maybe I shouldn't be involved here at all. Verse 20, David says, Now then do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord matters more to David than anything. Sure, he's worshipped God in the caves. He's written poetry and psalms there. He's found the Lord in the wilderness. We know this. He's loved God on the run, but he can't worship at the tabernacle. He can't enjoy the things that God gave the people to draw him close. And I believe David is at the place... That troubling place where inner betrayals and persecutions have led lesser men to chase after lesser gods. And we see it happen. Where people are hurt by the people of God. My friends, don't ever blame God for man's misrepresentation of Him. Don't ever assume that God is as His people are. Because God is wholly consistent. Faithful, righteous, perfect. He never makes a mistake. I will. You will. We have. David is in a very difficult place. He's feeling like they are just pressing him out. And people are saying, look, go worship somewhere else. Go be a part of something else. Now listen. Because we all get to these low points in life. The one that David is hitting right here. He has forgiven and forgiven and forgiven at least seven times. Probably many, many more times has he forgiven Saul over this period of his life. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, 21, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus said in Luke 17, 4, If your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. But what about, as in David's case, when forgiveness becomes wearisome? When, as the title of our message says, when you're forgiving on empty, I have forgiven you so many times, I have no forgiveness left to give. Which is kind of a silly statement, as if forgiveness was like, you know, something you serve for dinner. I'm sorry, my cupboards are bare. But what do you do when you get to that place? I have forgiven and forgiven and forgiven, and I'm just tired of it. I just don't have it. I just want to forget all about this. What do I do? I think this is where David is. He is wearing thin on forgiveness. In fact, number five in your notes, David is running on empty. How do you know? In the last half of verse 20. He says, The king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. This is a very candid picture. This partridge in the mountain. It's not the partridge in the pear tree, which is a nice, warm, you know, kind of homey picture we sing about at Christmas. The partridge in the mountains. Davis and Whitcomb in their commentary, Israel, write the following. The common species of partridge in the Holy Land attempts to save itself by running rather than by flight. The bird is continually chased in a hunt until it's fatigued, and then it's knocked down with sticks thrown along the ground. This, in a very vivid way, reflects the effects of Saul's pursuit on David. David is the partridge in the mountains. 
the partridge that has been running and running and running and he's exhausted now and he's out of breath and he is done forgiving and he's reached the lowest point in his life up until now. This is the worst place that David has been so far. He is just spent. He's done. And he's so low, in fact, as we'll see Wednesday night, he's so low that he's going to go back to Philistia in hopes of just finding some rest and some peace. You ever do that? You ever go back to the land of the enemy to find rest? I am so tired of the way things are in the church. So I'm going to get out of here. I'm tired of church people. I'm tired of church hypocrisy. I'm tired of being let down. Maybe I can just find peace. Maybe I'll have better luck out in the world. Two words for you this morning. Fat chance. Now, shouldn't we have peace and rest here in the church? Yeah. Ideally, that'd be great. The thing is that though we are not of the world and we live in the world, we still have a sin nature. The church is not going to be a perfect place for you to hide out and find rest in the world. But if you are running on spiritual empty like David is here, I can promise you this, you will never find rest in the world. You will continue to be dogged by all the things that are difficult for you, even in a church fellowship. You will never find rest or peace in the world. So how do we do this? How do we give the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is calling for? And gang, it is tough. Jesus' forgiveness, His standard that He has set for us is 24-7 forgiveness. You forgive someone and they violate something against you again, you forgive them again. And they come at you again, you forgive them again. And you keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And sometimes I think about that and go, man, that makes me feel like a partridge in the mountains. That just wears me out. That's just a tiring thought. How many times, Lord, do I have to forgive? And Jesus would raise the eyebrow and say, Well, I told Peter, until your forgiveness is complete, you keep going. How do we obey Jesus' call when forgiveness itself gets tiresome? Jesus made it simple. If you haven't memorized this verse, I encourage you to do so. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say go to the church. Not that that's a bad idea. He doesn't say go to those friends or go to your family or go back to the world because maybe you can find some rest there in Felicia. No, what the Lord says is Come to me. You tired of forgiving? Come to me. If you worn out and weary, come to me. And I will give you rest. Gang, we can't forgive in our strength. We cannot do it. But watch where David goes. Even in his weariness, there's one thing that sees him through. Verse 23. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight today, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may He, and may He, deliver me from all distress. David resorts to the righteousness of God. He resorts to the righteousness of God. Keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 54, the psalm that David wrote about this encounter. Psalm 54, verse 1. 
You might notice the heading at the top of your psalm, which in my Bible reads, it's a mascal of David, when the Ziphites came and, and said to Saul, is not David hiding, hiding himself among us? So this is what David wrote when Saul comes after him the second time. Verse 1, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he, that is you, have delivered me from all trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction on my enemies. How do I resort to the righteousness of God like David? How do I have this kind of heart that even when people are coming after me and I've forgiven and forgiven and forgiven and they're still coming after me and they're still annoying, how do I forgive? Focus on the Lord. I promise you, the the more you focus on the annoying or the difficult person in your life, the harder it's going to get. The more you think about them, the more you worry over them, the more you wonder, am I going to have to forgive them again? The more difficult it's going to be. But the more you look at the Lord, the easier forgiveness becomes. There is a healing prescription in Jesus' top two commands. When he says, Matthew 22, 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, you have trouble doing if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. My relationship with Jesus is of primary importance, not just for me, but for my relationships with other people. And the more I'm looking at the Lord, the more I have the strength to forgive again and again and again. Now think with me just a moment longer. The unique difference between this act of forgiveness on David's part and the last one is, as we pointed out, that David doesn't touch Saul. He doesn't cut off the hem of his robe. He doesn't actually come into contact with Saul at all. Verse 12 tells us he takes the spear and the water. He takes the spear and the water. And isn't that exactly what Jesus, the son of David, did for you and for me? He took the spear and the water flowed. John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Jesus didn't touch the enemy's robe. He didn't proclaim a challenge to the enemy, the God of this world, Satan. He didn't take on the enemy's right to rule in this present age. He took the spear and when he did, the water flowed from his side. And what's interesting to me is that spear that was stuck into the side of David, the wound from that spear, that scar remained after his resurrection. Jesus is healed and back to life. In his glorified body, he, he, he's alive. He's able to walk through walls. I mean, it's cool. And by the way, if you want to know what you'll be like when you're in your glorified body, look at the stories of Jesus post-resurrection. I think part of that is a picture for us of what we're going to be able to do. We won't ever happen to have to open the barn door on a cold, snowy day. We just walk right through. I'm here. But though he was healed, and in his eternal body once again, he still had the scars. 
He said to Thomas in John 20 verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. How could he do that? Because there's a hole in his side where he took the spear and where the water flowed out. In the same way, David took the spear and the water. It, why does he take the spear and the jug of water? It's kind of a random thing to do. I got your Evian, you know. <laughs> what is that about, David? There is a picture here that the Spirit is weaving. Why would David pick up the jug at all? Because the Spirit told him to. I'm absolutely convinced. Because in the history of man, God is writing a story. And God is painting pictures. And he's saying, notice this, notice this. The spear and the water. Here is how you forgive. With the spear and the water. Here is how it's done. You take the spear. And then you, like Jesus, forgive. And what comes out of you is not bitterness and and bile and, and anger and vitriol. What comes out of you is water. Water of the Holy Spirit. The living water. That Jesus says will flow from out of us. Will well up within us unto eternal life. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 gives us the key. When forgiveness makes you worry. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on our enemy who just bugs us. Because when we do. No. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And listen to this. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You don't consider the enemy. You don't consider those coming against you. You don't consider how many times is it that I have forgiven. No, you consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How was David able to continually forgive Saul time after time after time? Because David, the man after God's own heart, was looking at God's own heart. He was focused on the righteousness of God. And did you know that every time you forgive by the strength of Jesus, it leaves a mark? It marks you. Even when your forgiveness stings, it may hurt, it may even draw blood in your life, but it will leave a lasting mark on your spirit. And you can call it the mark of forgiveness. Every time you look at someone and say, I forgive you, it will mark you. It's how I know I'm a man after God's own heart when I begin to recognize the marks of forgiveness in my life. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through which the the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then he closes out his book to the Galatians saying in verse 17, Let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The brand marks of Jesus. Now, Now Paul, unlike you and unlike me, Paul could say, look at my back which has been whipped numerous times. Look at my face. You see these scars? These are from the stones that people threw at me when they left me for dead. Look at my body. I got marks all over me. And indeed, Paul would have because he was beaten to a pulp after he made that glorious decision to become a Christian. His life went boom. But he was covered with scars and he was able to call every one of those scars the marks of Jesus. Are you wounded by something someone has done to you in your life? 
Okay? When you forgive them, that wound turns into a Jesus mark. A mark of forgiveness. And the more we forgive, the more we were marked like Jesus. And if you want to be a person after God's own heart, forgive. And if you feel like you're running on empty, you're forgiving on empty, then look to the Lord. Don't look to the person you're forgiving. Forgive them with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Take the spears that people throw and the water of the Spirit will flow. That's kind of good. Take the spears that people throw and the water of the Spirit will flow. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful for these stories of David's life just in considering them they they truly give us pause to think about what it means to follow you and to be your children to think about the impact Lord of our lives on others in this world consider David this man after your own heart and Lord as we've said each week for several now we want that we want to be people after your own heart men after your your own heart Father women after your own heart And we recognize that this is not an easy process, but it takes us through the land of forgiveness. And down the road of difficulty and scars and woundedness that continue to grow on us as we forgive. But Father, I pray for this fellowship for each of us individually. You will give us the strength to take the spear that the water would flow. That you will give us the power by your righteousness, Lord, by your spirit, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. Lord, you will give us the strength to be a people of forgiveness. Father, I pray there will be families this holiday season shocked by the forgiveness that flows out of people here. Because, Lord, we are looking at you. Give us the strength by your spirit to forgive and give us eyes, Lord, fixed on you and you alone so that we will not grow weary and lose heart until you come. And we pray you come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Worship team, come on back up.